Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. Two weeks ago, we discussed the story of William Walker, a Nashvilleian who, in 1853, led a mercenary army of a few dozen men from California and attempted to take over all of Mexico to further America's manifest destiny to spread across the continent. So we definitely suggest that you listen to the last episode before you listen to this one. But to sum it up, last week's episode ended with Walker barely making it back to the United States after being chased out of Mexico by local militias and the Mexican army. He turned himself into the United States military. He was tried for a violation of the Neutrality Act, but he was acquitted after the jury deliberated for only eight minutes. This week, we are continuing Walker's story as he attempted to take over the Central American country of Nicaragua and conclude with how Walker's life was intertwined with the United States' path towards civil war. Okay, so Walker finds himself back home in California, having failed this attempt to to take over all of Mexico. And he goes back into the newspaper industry for a short time. He worked as the editor of the San Francisco Commercial Advertiser and the Sacramento State Journal. But he didn't stay in the newspaper business for that long. He was convinced that his mission to Mexico failed, but not because you know, it was a bad idea or poorly planned, but because he didn't have enough public support or recognition from the federal government, who would be a little bit more strategic in making his next attempt. One article from HistoryNet.com said that, Had Walker's filibustering ended with the fiasco in Baja, California, he would have become little more than a footnote to history. However, the resolute man of destiny saw far greater challenges in his future. He next set his sights on Nicaragua. That man of destiny line? Around this time, Walker adopted a new moniker, the gray-eyed man of destiny. And we've already established that he's a guy who likes to have these grand names. He was called the filibuster. Now he's the gray-eyed man of destiny. This will continue in the near future. So what made Walker decide on Nicaragua? There are three main reasons, climate, location, and political unrest. So the first one, climate. In the mid-1850s, many Southerners looked at Central America as a location in which they could or should expand. There was a book written around this time by a man named Edward A. Pollard, and he said, The path of our destiny on this continent lies in tropical America, where we may see an empire powerful and gorgeous as ever was pictured in our dreams of history. An empire representing the noble peculiarities of Southern civilization, having control of the two staples of the world's commerce, cotton and sugar. The destiny of Southern civilization is to be consummated in glory brighter than that of old. Second, location. Nicaragua, of course, is in Central America. And as we talk about the country and the different cities, it's good to note that if you need a map of Nicaragua, look at our Instagram page. 10 and 20 podcast, T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast on Instagram. But for those who aren't looking at a map, Nicaragua is located in that narrow ship of land that connects North and South America and that connects the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. Remember how in that last episode when we talked about how all this was happening in the midst of the gold rush? Hundreds of thousands of Americans are moving to California to strike it rich. And in the 19th century, it could take months to travel from the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States. Sailing was the quickest way. Some sailed around the southern tip of South America, but this was dangerous and costly. Those wishing to save time could disembark in Central America, carry their goods across land, and embark again on the West Central American coast. 
Nicaragua was such an ideal place that the U.S. and Great Britain were in the process of negotiating a joint canal to make the process even quicker. Many wealthy Americans were looking to capitalize in this area. One of them is Cornelius Vanderbilt, who had built a fortune in the railroad and transportation industry. And for those of you living in Nashville, he is a namesake to Vanderbilt University. He developed the Accessory Transit Company, which transported customers via steamboat and coach from one coast of Nicaragua to the other. The company opened in 1851 and was a huge success from its beginning, as there were so many people moving to California. And then the third reason is political unrest. And this is pretty simple. Nicaragua was in the midst of a civil war. There were two warring factions in the country known as the Democrats, which were the party that had been in power, and then the Legitimists. Which is the greatest name for a political party, because you're just basically telling anybody that you're legitimate. Right. We're the legit party. <laughs> Walker knew that if he could capitalize on the political unrest, he could stand a much greater chance of taking control. Walker was able to obtain a contract from the president of Nicaragua, a current member of the Democratic Party, to bring as many as 300 colonists into the country. There's going to be multiple times in this episode where we're going to be doing air quotes, and we'll try and tell you when that is. The first air quote of the episode is around colonists, because this group of colonists would really be mercenaries in disguise. So they're essentially hired by the Democratic Party in Nicaragua to help overthrow the legitimists. So they're, they're just hiring them as, as contract mercenary soldiers. And Walker began recruiting for this new expedition right away. It's important to note that around this time, Walker begins referring to himself as General Walker. Right. No military experience other than what he's led, and now he's gone from colonel to general. Field promotion. He again faced opposition from the American government. Uh, one historian wrote that, Timid capitalists, ignorant sneerers, wise old fogies, and jealous detractors had all to be met and singly overcome, while the jeers of the press and assaults of small politicians opposed to the party espoused by General Walker helped to retard his movements, but he could wait and hope. Yes, and one of these ignorant sneers was a local government that seized his ship, Vesta, for death purposes. While Walker's new expedition was legal, again, air quotes, uh, he couldn't rely on the federal government to back it. Out of the two opposing political parties in Nicaragua, the Legitimists, who were the opposite side of who Walker had contracted with, the Legitimists were backed by the British. The U.S. government didn't want to risk angering the British while they were still negotiating this canal through the country. Basically, the U.S. government is telling Walker, do what you want, just don't get us involved. In May of 1855, Walker, now with 57 armed soldiers masquerading again as colonists, air quotes, made his way to Nicaragua. And remember, he had gotten permission to bring 300. He's got 57. So he tried. I don't know what happens to the other 243. But again, with, with Walker's penchant for picking grand nicknames, the members of Walker's small army had two nicknames. They were called the Immortals. And the Falange Americana, or the American Phalanx. I like how they get nicknames even before they do anything. <laughs> <laughs> They've done nothing yet. Uh, Walker described his men in this way. He said, They were men of strong character, tired of the humdrum of common life, and ready for a career which might bring them the sweets of adventure or the rewards of fame. Shortly after Walker's arrival in Nicaragua, though, he is joined by 200 local soldiers who were fighting for the Democratic Party. 
his mission to Nicaragua is immediately way more successful than his prior trip to Mexico. By October of 1855, after just a few months, his men had overrun the legitimists from the city of Granada and negotiated the surrender of the legitimist army. This is when things start escalating really fast. Because he has another field promotion. He is no longer calling himself General Walker. He is now Major General Walker and Commander-in-Chief of the Army of the Republic of Nicaragua. And he set up a new president, Don Patricio Rivas. And Rivas was really just a puppet. It seems like from the beginning, the real power lay with Walker. He then helped Nicaragua lobby U.S. President Franklin Pierce into recognizing the newly formed government and started a bilingual newspaper that helped spread the word in the United States that Nicaragua was ready for American colonization. So throughout this time, he is gaining more and more recruits from American citizens who were using Nicaragua to travel from California. So primarily still an offshoot of the 49er movement, these people seeking adventure then hook up with Walker while he's in Nicaragua. And for a few months, things seemed to be relatively peaceful. But of course, that didn't last for very long. Many leaders from neighboring countries, understandably, felt that Walker would use the foothold he had gained in Nicaragua to Americanize all of Central America. Which, if we're being honest, that seems probably what he would do after that. I mean, that's what he said he was going to do. (laughs) And in March of 1856, an army from Costa Rica invaded Nicaragua and nearly ousted Walker, but they were forced to retreat due to an outbreak in cholera. By June of 1856, the government Walker had established was falling apart. The president of Nicaragua, the guy Walker had set up, attempted to get Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador to turn against Walker, So Walker had the Nicaraguan president declared a traitor and called for elections with himself as the candidate. Again, we're using air quotes around the word election. Right. (laughs) Because Walker won this election Election. (laughs) in July of 1856 and launched into a full-scale plan to Americanize the country and encourage American colonization. He took over the estates of his opponents and resold them to his American allies. And then here's the real kicker. He also legalized slavery, which had been abolished in Nicaragua over 30 years prior. The idea was to open the door for wealthy southern slave owners to move to Nicaragua. And don't just take our word for it. Walker himself wrote a memoir a few years after this. And to be honest, most of it's super boring. But we're going to read you just some of the interesting parts. So we're going to kind of paraphrase a little bit. But Walker believed that the founders of the United States were mistaken in their belief that all men are created equal. In his memoir, he accused them of being under the influence of philosophical, quote, ravings about equality and fraternity, unquote. And as a side note, This sentiment is echoed just a few years later in 1861 by a man named Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the newly formed Confederate States of America. This idea that the founders were mistaken when they said all men are created equal. Walker also wrote, and I quote, It is only of the late years that the really beneficial and conservative character of Negro slavery has begun to be appreciated in the United States. And then this one is... Even worse. Even worse, yeah. Quote, the introduction of Negro slavery into Nicaragua would furnish a supply of constant and reliable labor requisite for the cultivation of tropical products. With the Negro slave as his companion, the white man would become fixed to the soil, and together they would destroy the power of the mixed race, which is the bane of the country. Yeah, Walker 
wrote that the slave decree was calculated to bind the southern states to Nicaragua as if she were one of themselves, but that he had no desire for the United States to annex Nicaragua into the country as a new state. It seems like Walker was less concerned about protecting slavery in the United States than he was about ensuring the future of slavery in general by moving it to Central America. And he was pretty open about it. When he was talking about what his men were fighting for, he said, in defense of slavery, these men left their homes, met with calmness and constancy, the perils of a tropical climate, and finally yielded up their lives for the interests of the South. And this goal had widespread support. One newspaper wrote, in the name of the white race, Walker offers Nicaragua to you and your slaves at a time when you have not a friend on the face of the earth. And on a bit of a lighter note, a musical was written about Walker's exploits at this point in time, and it was simply titled Nicaragua or General Walker's Victories. Hundreds of Americans took up land grants in Nicaragua, hoping to capitalize on the new land, and then they made the trip to aid Walker's army. So his force there is increasing. Walker faced an immediate problem as a new president, well, that's air quotes, president, more like dictator right. of Nicaragua. Forces from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras all invaded with arms provided by the British. And making matters even worse, Cornelius Vanderbilt sent agents to aid the Costa Ricans after Walker agreed to transfer transportation business contracts that Vanderbilt had had to some of Vanderbilt's rivals. And on top of all of that, U.S. President Franklin Pierce revokes his recognition of the new government. Walker held out against superior forces for about five months until his army was nearly depleted by disease and desertion before turning himself in on May 1st, 1857 to a U.S. naval officer who was there to negotiate his surrender. It seems like the United States was basically saying, we'll get you out of here. You just need to turn yourself in. Pretty similar to what happened in Mexico. After returning to the United States, Walker still believed he was the legitimate president of Nicaragua. He traveled around the South again, raising funds for a return trip, and was widely celebrated for his actions. And I don't, I don't doubt that he still believed he was the president of Mexico at this point as well. Yeah. Can you be the president of two different countries at the same time? We'll see. Hmm. In November 1857, he attempted to make his return trip to Nicaragua, but he was captured by the United States Navy. Dozens of Southern congressmen protested Walker's capture, and none other than Alexander Stevens, the future vice president of the Confederacy that we mentioned a few minutes ago, called for the court-martial of the naval officer who arrested Walker. Oppositely, though, the new president of the United States, James Buchanan, was in favor of his capture. One newspaper wrote that the president desired the capture and directed it to be made. After his arrest, Walker wrote a letter in protest to President Buchanan. Part of it read, And as long as our faith and right endures, and our confidence in the God of our fathers remains unshaken, so long shall we use all just and proper means to regain what has been wrongfully wrestled from us. Which he wrongfully wrestled from the Nicaraguans. Right. It, de- it just depends on which wrongful wrestler you're talking about here. That's true. I think we've said wrongful wrestler enough. <laughs> there was a lively debate on the House floor to determine what would happen to Walker. John Thompson, a Republican from New York, took the view in favor of Walker's arrest. He believed that Walker had unfairly become a hero when he was only really ever a villain. Thompson said, Suddenly, from a felon, William Walker becomes a hero. 
From a reckless outlaw guilty of robbery and murder, he becomes a second Moses, leading a nation from a wilderness of difficulties into a land of promise. From a scourge and a curse, he becomes a pioneer of civilization, a pattern of good government, and a benefactor of his race. Honorable members declare here that a great wrong has been done and talk openly of giving him indemnity. Walker claims to have set foot upon the soil of Central America from the purpose of assisting one or the other contending parties, but as a conqueror of all parties. I say that he is guilty by both codes, by the code of international law and violating the neutrality law of the United States. Although there were those opposed to Walker's actions, public sentiment was still very much in his favor. This public sentiment was exactly what Walker had intended to. That Walker's self-mythologizing was in some ways his success. He was received by many major journalistic media, popular melodramatists, and popular historians in just the romantic terms he preferred. To many in the South, Walker's inability to return to Nicaragua was a sign of northern oppression of southern slave owners. And as he was touring the South in Mississippi, he appealed to, quote, the mothers of Mississippi to bid their sons buckle on the armor of war and battle for the institutions for the honor of the sunny South. Walker then planned a third grand attempt to return to Nicaragua in December of 1858, but his ship hit a reef and sank before reaching the Central American coast. They were rescued by a British ship. I find that a bit ironic that it's a British ship. And he was returned to the United States. But by this time, Nicaragua had set up naval ships to stop filibusters, like Walker, probably primarily Walker, <laughs> and had asked the United States government to do all they could as well. So, I mean, really, who knows if any of these attempts would come nearly as successful as his first try, but he's not stopping. No, because Walker toured the South yet again, trying to drum up funds and volunteers for another expedition. The crowds that gathered to hear Walker speak were smaller this time around, but he was still able to recruit 97 filibusters, mostly youths, to rendezvous with him in Honduras and attempt for a fourth and final time to retake Nicaragua. This attempt ended yet again in disaster. Upon landing in Honduras, Walker was immediately captured by British forces. Only this time, rather than returning Walker to the United States, he was turned over to Honduran authorities. On September 12, 1860, Walker was executed for piracy in Trujillo, Honduras. An article in the New York Times, written about a month later on October 5, 1860, said, Walker, it appears, was not permitted to have any communication with any of his followers previous to his execution. He marched from his cell to the place of execution with a steady step and unshaken mien. A chair had been placed for him with its back toward the castle. Having taken his seat, he was blindfolded. Three soldiers stepped forward to within 20 feet of him and discharged their muskets. The balls entered his body, and he leaned a little forward. But it being observed he was not dead, a fourth soldier mercifully advanced so close to the suffering man that the muzzle of his musket almost touched his forehead, and being there discharged, scattered his brains and skull to the winds. Thus ends the life of the gray-eyed man of destiny." Walker was buried in Honduras, and his grave is still there. But that doesn't mean his legacy didn't live on in the United States. After his death, the bandage that had covered his eyes was allegedly being used as a sideshow. Viewers flocked to see it. The newspaper article that we got this story from, it was kind of like a, we couldn't believe that people are actually doing this kind of thing. Who would go and see this? But the best part is, 
is that it referred to Walker as the worst humbug of the day. Walker had spent the majority of the 1850s in Central America, or at least trying to get back to Central America. But his story coincides with many hugely significant events in American politics. When Walker was executed in September of 1860, the United States was in extreme political unrest, with the country quickly heading towards the Civil War. So we wanted to stop talking about Walker for just a moment and talk about what was happening from 1854 to 1860, in the years that Walker was acting as a filibuster. So we decided to just go through some, a few of the major events in American politics that build up to the Civil War. In 1854, the Nebraska-Kansas Act was implemented, which led to the years of violence known as Bleeding Kansas, in which pro- and anti-slavery parties fought over the legality of slavery in the new states. Later in 1854, the Republican Party was founded as a party opposed to the expansion of slavery into new territories. In 1856, Republican Senator Charles Sumner was being nearly to death on the floor of the U.S. Senate after delivering a speech critical of slavery and slaveholders. Later in 1856, Republican candidate and abolitionist John C. Fremont lost the presidential election, but won nearly a third of the popular vote, including most of the states in the Upper North. In 1857, the Dred Scott decision was made by the United States Supreme Court, in which Chief Justice Roger B. Taney ruled that African-American slaves had no rights which the white men were bound to respect. This decision effectively allowed slave owners to bring their slaves wherever they chose, even a state that didn't allow slavery. In 1859, abolitionist John Brown led a raid on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, hoping to instigate a widespread slave revolt. In November of 1860, just two months after Walker's execution, Abraham Lincoln is elected president, and southern states start calling for secession. A month later, on December 18, 1860, John J. Crittenden proposed to resolve the secession crisis by reinstituting the 3630 line between slavery and freedom in all U.S. territories. Lincoln disagreed, maybe thinking of Walker when he said this, when he said, It would amount to a perpetual covenant of war against every people, tribe, and state owning a foot of land between here and Tierra del Fuego. On December 20, 1860, South Carolina secedes from the Union followed a few weeks later by Mississippi. Mississippi declared, Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Back to William Walker for a moment. In many ways, he exemplified our nation's struggle with slavery. This did not begin with Walker, though. In truth, our country struggled with the institution of slavery since the very beginning. Many of our founding fathers were slave owners who also believed that all men are created equal. These two beliefs, the belief that one person had the right to own another, and the belief in the equality of man, could not both exist indefinitely. Much of the 19th century politics was shaped by this struggle, and by the 1850s, things were speeding up quickly, to the point where it seemed like war was inevitable. William Walker, like the secessionists that came after him, was willing to risk everything in order to achieve what he believed was his manifest destiny. This is a conversation that we will be continuing in future episodes. In the meantime, if you would like to learn more about the Civil War and American history, please come visit Carter House and Carnton in Franklin, Tennessee. You might even get one of us as your tour guide. Please continue to support us too by visiting our store, store 
store.boft.org and there's a coupon code. Yeah, if you go to store.boft.org and you use the code FRANKLINXMAS, that's all uppercase, FRANKLINXMAS, you can receive 10% off your order between now and December 17th. And if you order by then, not only do you get 10% off, you will definitely receive your order by Christmas Day. We definitely recommend buying our t-shirt, the 10 and 20 t-shirts. They're really cool. They're locally made. I was going to say, I already bought some for some of my relatives for Christmas. So yeah, you should definitely... Don't make us be the only ones buying our t-shirts. <laughs> um, we'll go broke. <laughs> right. And uh, some I wanted to point out a couple books. I'm reading right now um, the book about Ulysses S. Grant. It's just called Grant by Ron Chernow. I know that has nothing to do with the topic that we just said. Uh, but it's a really good book. It's big. If you have a Civil War history buff in your life, I definitely recommend checking that out. A book that's more on the topic that we're talking about, These Truths. I just started reading that. And it's kind of a big book. That's brand but, new, right? Yeah, it's brand new. It just came out. It's it's very good so far, although I'm only on page like 40. So I can't speak too much towards its whole contents. It's These Truths, A History of the United States of America by Jill Lepore. Yes, by Jill Lepore. And Mm -hmm. I recommended Grant by Ron Chernow. And then, of course, our t-shirts. Again, go to store.boft.org and use Franklin Xmas, all capital letters, all one word, uh, at checkout and receive 10% off. Definitely do that by December 17th. Follow this podcast on Instagram. It's just 10in20podcast, T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast. We'll post photographs from this podcast and all others and follow Carter House and Carnton on Facebook. Some of you have reached out already with suggestions to us or comments on what you, you know like about the show. We love that. We even had a couple of teachers reach out and tell us that they've been using these episodes in the classroom. One said that they did an online scavenger hunt. And as part of that scavenger hunt, they had to listen to the mint julep episode that we did, which is so cool. I know being a past teacher myself, it kind of warms my heart that we're able to put this in the classroom. If you want to reach out to us, please do. Even just even if it's just to say, hey, we like the show or, or whatever, send us an email at podcast at boft.org and we'll get back to you. So thank you so much for listening.